Amen. Amen. Have a seat. If, um, if you have your Bibles, hope you do, go to... <laughs> if you don't have your Bibles, then I feel bad for you. I will pray for you now. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Second Chronicles chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, we have them available back by the doors. You can uh, go ahead and, and, and grab one for yourself there. Uh, I'd encourage you to have a Bible with you. If you have your device in front of you, then um, you can just navigate uh, in whatever app that you're using. Unless it's Facebook, then you can shut that one down. And then you can navigate in your Bible app to uh, uh, <clears throat> Second Chronicles chapter 13. That is where we're going to be this morning. Just a word before I jump in. Um, <laughs> I probably have to say this 14 times through the rest of the series, but the series that we're doing is the kings of Israel, right? Um, for you Bible scholars or any of you who read your Bible, what you're going to realize this morning is actually the king we're looking at named Abijah is a king of Judah. Um, I've done some mental gymnastics to make it make sense to me why he still could be a king of Israel, being God's people, blah, blah. but we're just going to ignore the title of the series right now because that really doesn't matter. The title's not inspired or inerrant. The fellow who made the title is very errant and lacks inspiration often. Instead, we're going to go by God's word, uh, which is very clear, and just, I'm not ripping on somebody, like Mark didn't come up with the title, it was me, all me, okay? That wasn't me being passive-aggressive, not yet, anyway, give me some time. Um, let me ask you a question as you're hopefully uh, found your way to Second Chronicles chapter 13. Um, when's the last time you yelled for help? Now, I know that can bring up all kinds of terrible memories, right? But, but think about it. When is the last time that you, just at the top of your lungs, with, with reckless abandon, with no care or concern what people thought of you, screamed for help. I was kind of trying to figure out a, a cute way to, to bring us into the message, so I was going to show some YouTube videos of little children on rides screaming for help, particularly the slingshot ride. For whatever reason, that seems to terrify most children. Um, and I was going to show that, but actually in each case I watched it, um, I watched them with my wife and she got teary-eyed each time because it was so sad that the kid was so terrified. So I figured that probably wouldn't be a good choice. So instead, what came to mind was a number of years ago now, probably 18 years ago, my family and I were um, vacationing and um, my oldest was only two or three years old and we had sent him upstairs to the bedroom that they were staying in for, for a nap. Um, it had a, it wasn't a closet because there was no enclosure around it, but it had one of those hanger bars, you know, where the hangers would go on. And it was just kind of in a section in the middle of the room. And as a dad, I looked at that and thought, that thing is prime for gymnastics. Well, my two or three-year-old son evidently thought the same thing. So while we were downstairs relaxing and he was supposed to be upstairs napping, we heard this distant And, and I'm going to be honest with you, it took a long time for it to register. I mean, I'm talking, not, not like hours, but I'm talking five, ten minutes. Help! Help! So finally I'm like, wait, is that my kid yelling for help? So I go, brave dad as I am, running upstairs, and what do I find? But there is Jordan, not in bed taking the nap as he is supposed to, but instead he is hanging by the thing. And he can't get down. 
Help! Now, I thought it was hilarious. I also thought that dude just pulled off an incredible, inhuman feat of, of strength to be able to hang there that long. I got him down, and as far as I know, he didn't do it. I'm pretty sure the other kids did. But, but the reality was he had no way to get down. He had no escape plan. He found himself in a situation that he needed somebody to come and to rescue him. So when's the last time you cried out to God like that? When's the last time that you felt the utter desperation of your arms stretching in their sockets? And so you screamed out to God to help you. When's the last time your prayer sounded like this? Lord, I am done. I have absolutely nothing left. I can't make it any longer. I, I, I'm totally and utterly empty. When's the last time you cried out to God, Lord, I, I need you. I need you. Not, not every day, not every week. I need you every moment, every hour, every second. In particular, this one right now, I need you. When's the last time that was the cry of your heart? We're going to look at, at 2 Chronicles chapter 13 in King Abijah, and we're going to You'll be able to see where the cry comes from as we walk through that. But a word about Abijah before we actually get there. Let me introduce you to the king whose name is Abijah. He's also talked about in 1 Kings chapter 15. And I'm going to put this up in front of you. 1 Kings chapter 15 verse 3, it says this. Abijah walked in all the sins his father before him had committed. And he was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God as his ancestor David had been. That is not exactly what you want written on your tombstone. But what does that look like? What does it look like to be, he wasn't wholehearted? What, what does it mean he was only half-hearted? Well, I, it doesn't get into a lot of specifics in the records we have about King Abijah. But, but I think by looking at the description of the king that followed him, King Asa, who we're going to talk about next week, um, we're told in 2 Chronicles 14, if you just want to turn your page, if you already made it to 13, we're told this about King Asa in chapter 14, verse 3. Asa removed the pagan altars and the high places. He shattered their sacred pillars and he chopped down their Asherah poles. He told the people of Judah to seek the Lord of their ancestors and to carry out the instruction and the commands. He also removed the high places and shrines from all the cities of Judah and the kingdom experienced peace under him. So, so here's a little commentary about the next king, the king who followed Abijah. And if this king had to remove all of these, these idol-worshiping uh, temples, all these idol-worshiping places, all of these high places, all of these shrines. If, if the next king had to wipe those out, what that tells us is the dude before him was not wholehearted after God, and the dude before him was King Abijah. So before we get too far into chapter 13, you just need to know King Abijah was not a good king at all. And yet the story we're going to look at in chapter 13 it seems like the author of the Chronicles wanted to give us a picture of this one shining moment in the midst of his three-year reign. So you've got this not a good king, but here is this really good moment in the life of King Abijah that the chronicler wants us all to remember. So, so let's talk about that for a minute. This is really isn't even my message, but I'd be foolish if I didn't touch on this. So, so, so many of you are sitting here this morning because it's Sunday. 
This is what you do on Sundays. You, you come to church. Many of you are here because you need a special prayer today or you're feeling the pressure of life and so you've come here. Some of you, <laughs> that special prayer is this, please, Lord, do not let the Ravens lose to the Browns, right? I mean, that'd be awful. But, but for a lot of you, you're here just because you're here, not because of anything else other than the fact that you're here. But some of you are here and in the back of your mind as you're looking around this room, you have this skepticism, even an irritation as you lock onto the face of somebody else who's in this room. Because as you look around this room, you see others who you would label as a hypocrite. A hypocrisy can be find, found like everywhere. Hollywood, media, politics, and yes, churches. I mean, for, for as long as I can remember, it's been a chief argument against uh, Christianity. You know, I respect you, I respect your beliefs, I respect your faith, but I don't want anything to do with the church because of all the hypocrites. Um, your observation is accurate. There are many of us in this room who are, um, are saying one thing and yet doing another. We've put the mask of hypocrisy up. But if hypocrisy is what's keeping you from the gospel, then you don't understand the gospel. And I mean that with all respect, so let me explain this for a moment. The gospel never suggests that Christians have it all together. In fact, the very premise of the gospel is that we are broken. And we don't have it all together. There's, there's a sin that is deep in us. And this sin is what created a separation between us and God. Even in, in Genesis chapter 3, it, it, it wasn't there at the beginning when God had created everything and called it very good. But, but sin had entered in and now there's a separation between man and God. And the, the power of the gospel is that while we were still sinners and helpless to do anything about our standing before God by ourselves, Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life, a life that was marked by perfection, not a, a sliver of hypocrisy in it. And then he took the wrath of a just and holy God. He spared us from God's judgment. And then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And in so doing, he broke the power of death. Death, death being the, that ultimate consequence of sin. And he, he provided eternal hope and a purpose for living. So, so if you're here and you're pointing at us saying, you hypocrites, you're so unfaithful. Are we hypocrites? Are we unfaithful? Absolutely. But does my lack of faith, my unfaithfulness, my lack of perfection, my hypocrisy, does that mean that God is not faithful? By no means. Romans 3, 3 says, because of the unfaithfulness of some, is, is God then unfaithful? No. So, so please understand this. As Christians, we're not, we're not trying to convince you to follow us or put your faith and hope in us. Because if your faith and hope is in any human being, you are going to be let down hard. 
We're testifying to our own brokenness, our own hypocrisy, our own imperfection, our own faithlessness. And and really, I would just plead with you to put your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who is perfect, the one who does not have a shadow of hypocrisy in him, because he's the only way to have hope. We're not preaching a message of how Jesus makes us better or fills our bank accounts. We're preaching a message about how undeserving we are, how unfaithful we've been, and how amazing it is that God would love a wretch like me. So God's calling you to lay down your excuses and to yield to him regardless of how people around you live. And and if you're to do that, then, then he's calling you to follow him. And part of his master plan, his incredible plan, which, which is amazing, is that you would rub shoulders with a local church and you would live with the rest of us hypocrites, encouraging us to love and good works. That's what we're here to do. We're no savior. We just know him. So I, I just thought I would say that since Abijah is a horrible human being, but he does a really good thing, so... There's hope for all of us, amen? Amen, I shouldn't do that, sorry. (laughs) Toasting from the pulpit's never a good thing. (laughs) I tried to stop, but you know me and water, how well that goes, so I wanted to be careful. All right, so here we go. Let's actually get to the message, shall we? (laughs) At least we're not bored yet. Okay, chapter 13. I'll start reading in verse 1. It says this, In the 18th year of Israel's king Jeroboam, Abijah became king over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother na- mother's name was Micaiah, or something like that, daughter of Uriel. She was from Gibeah. And there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Abijah set his army of warriors in order with 400,000 fit young men. Jeroboam arranged his mighty army of 800,000 fit men in battle formation against him. Let's stop here. So really, the, the introduction to the story is this. There are a lot of people going to war. You've got 400,000 versus 800,000. Now, those are some enormous numbers, and as you read through church historians, as you read, read through different pastors and theologians and commentators, you come up with all kinds of ideas of, of how those numbers could actually make sense. So, so I'm going to give you three kind of options and tell you, really, I'm going to tell you what I, what I think, and, and, and that really is, well, it doesn't matter. Um, here's the three options. Three options are those numbers, 400,000 uh, for Abijah and 800,000 for Jeroboam. Those are actually the numbers of adult males in their kingdom who are over the age of 20. So while they're not all dressed out in their military fatigues going to battle, these are the young men who could go to battle. Now, that's one possibility. That would be one way that the ancient Near East counted their armies, and that that is true. I think, though, this one of the three is probably the least likely because in verse 3, it says that he had uh, arranged these men into battle stations. So it's talking about the battle that's going to occur. It's not that they're sitting at home, okay? So, so that's one option. The other one is that it, there's, there's some um, history of the word thousand in Hebrew, which Chronicles is written originally in, um, standing for a military unit that really doesn't have a thousand soldiers in it, somewhat less than that. Much like if you were to study history, you would read about a Roman century, you would find out that every century didn't have a hundred soldiers. It had somewhere between uh, 80 and 160 soldiers. That's a possibility. Um, 
Or, this is the one I land on, this is simply a mass of humanity and a huge battle. That, that's, either way, no matter where you land on it, that, that, that truth remains. It's a bunch of people who are going to war. And, and really, the point of this isn't the number. The point is the ratio. Here you have King Abijah, who is now outnumbered by King Jeroboam two to one. Those are not good odds. So the battle's about to take place, and now what we're about to read is King Abijah's best imitation of William Wallace from Braveheart. Okay, he's, he's rallying the troops, he's hollering across the battlefield, the men at the other side. No, there's no kilts involved. Praise God for that. No kilts, but okay. So look at verse 4. Here comes his, his best William Wallace impersonation. Abijah, he stood on Mount Zemaraim, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, and he said, Jeroboam and all Israel, hear me. Don't you know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? We'll talk about that in a second. But Jeroboam, son of Nebat, a servant of Solomon, son of David, rose up and rebelled against the Lord. Then worthless and wicked men gathered around him to resist Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young, inexperienced, and unable to assert himself against them. And now you are saying you can assert yourselves against the Lord's kingdom, which is in the hand of one of David's sons. I'm going to stop right there. So, so the first thing that Abijah does is he stands before the enemy and he says, listen, this kingdom that we are fighting over will never belong to you. Because if you remember back with my granddaddy, great-granddaddy, an older guy named David in my family line, God looked at David and said, this kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. Just a little side note. Does David's kingdom and throne still remain? There's some there's argument about that. But I can tell you this. It's gonna again. And his name's Jesus. And he's gonna return and he is the king of kings. He is the one who's going to fulfill that prophecy. So I got goosebumps and had to say it, so I'm going to move on now. Okay, so, so Abijah's saying, listen, listen, this, this, you're, you're coming to battle against us, but this kingdom has been given to my family for all of eternity. In fact, God made a covenant of salt with us. How many of you enjoy salting your food a little too much? Okay, this is your biblical reasoning for doing it. It's biblical, salt away. The idea is this, there's a covenant of salt. Any doctors or Dr. Tate, he's like, oh, no. <laughs> the, the covenant of salt was made in the, in the, the old Arab countries. The, the, the thought was that salt could never be destroyed. You couldn't burn it hot enough to get rid of it. It still remained. And so when you made a covenant of salt, the idea was this covenant, this agreement, this promise that we're making to each other will last forever. So that's the type of promise that was made to David by God. And Abijah says, listen, so, so this kingdom doesn't belong to Jeroboam. No, he rebelled. This kingdom belongs to me because I am in the line of David and you think you can just grab it from me? Continue reading at the middle of verse 8 there. He says, you are a vast number and you have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made for you as gods. Didn't you banish the priests of the Lord? 
the descendants of Aaron and the Levites and, and make your own priests like the peoples of other lands do? Oh yeah, so whoever comes to ordain himself with a young bull and seven rams may become a priest of what are not gods. So what Abijah's saying is this, I, I know about you guys. You're worshiping two golden calves because you know that first one went so well for their ancestors, right? So now Jeroboam's brought in two and he's gotten rid of the, the priestly line. And, and, and now what he's done is basically the priesthood is for sale. As long as you bring the right offering, you too can be a priest. It's like online ordination. You too, you don't have to worry about school, you just type in a couple things, but ah, you can marry anybody. Um, or perform the marriage for anybody. You still can't marry anybody, but leave that, <laughs> probably should leave that alone too. Um, so, so Abijah is, is really calling them out for false worship. These priests, they serve at the altar of these things that you, you call them gods, but they're not gods, you know that. Look at verse 10. But as for us, the Lord is our God. We haven't abandoned him. The priests ministering to the Lord, they're descendants of Aaron. The Levites serve at their tasks. They offer a burnt offering and fragrant incense to the Lord every morning and every evening. They set the rows of the bread of the presence on the ceremonially clean table. They light the lamps of the gold lampstand every evening. We're carrying out the requirements of the, of the I just lost my, but we were carrying out the requirements of the Lord our God while you have abandoned him. See, we, we have the real priests doing the real sacrifices, doing the, the real offerings according to the real schedule. We're, we're following the, the commandments of God while you've abandoned him completely, but we haven't abandoned him. Verse 12, look, God and his priests are with us at our head. The trumpets are ready to sound the charge against you. Israelites, don't fight against the Lord God of your ancestors, for you will not succeed. There is some solid counsel right there. You can't fight God and win. You can't, I was reading in my own uh, reading, and I am, uh, I'm in the minor prophets right now. Um, I'm reading Zechariah. Oh, I used to love that book. I'm reading through it right now, and I am so confused at moments that I'm tempted to go back and restart at Leviticus. Um, but I'm reading through Zechariah, and this one phrase stood out to me. At the very beginning of Zechariah, he says this. He says, so, so where are your ancestors? Where are they? See, see they rebelled against God. They rebelled against God's word. They said, we know what we're going to do to give us security and long life. We know what we're going to do, so we're just going to do whatever we want. Where are your ancestors? Oh, that's right, they're dead. How about God and his word? Oh, it remains. You can't fight God and succeed. But interestingly, as you continue to read, it looks like they may fight God and succeed. Look at Verse 13, as Abijah is giving his speech, Jeroboam had sent an ambush around to advance from behind them. So now they were in front of Judah, and the ambush was behind them. So now not only is Abijah outnumbered two to one, but now he's been outmaneuvered. 
So how often is that true in your life? Explain what I mean. You have obstacles staring you in the face. You finally get up enough nerve to tackle that one obstacle. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you get hit by another one. It's a sickness, cancer. And you're, you're doing your best to make it through chemo and through radiation sickness, the treatment schedule, you've you finally kind of um, taken that on as you, your, your new normal, as difficult as that is. And then as you're adjusting to that and you finally find a rhythm and you're like, okay, I got this. I, this obstacle in front of me, I got this. And then you're ambushed by an infection. What about your finances? You finally have a plan you finally have it figured out and you're, you're working hard and you're making sacrifices and you're making some headway and, and things are going the right way and now you look and you, you have a little extra money. Then you're ambushed and realize there's no such thing as extra money. The army they have to fight is no longer just in front of them, it's all around them. They're outnumbered and they're outmaneuvered. Verse 14, Judah turned and discovered that the battle was in front of them and behind them, and so they cried out to the Lord, help! Help! And this, this, this word cried out isn't just like this, this weeping or even the cry of my son as he hung there for, for a good number of minutes. This word cry out actually comes from the root word to sound as thunder. There there is a heavy-duty, hardcore wailing that is flowing from the hearts of these people. It's not a hopeless one. It's just the realization that they are stuck and they don't have a way out. And so they cried out to God. The priests blew the trumpet, the end of verse 14, verse 15. The men of Judah raised the battle cry. And when the men of Judah raised the battle cry, God routed Jeroboam and all of Israel before Abijah and Judah. So the Israelites fled before Judah and God handed them over to them. So so when they cried out to God, God heard them. And victory was theirs. And the victory was theirs not because of their might, not because of their wisdom, not because of their tactics, not because of their their numbers. Victory was theirs because what verse 18 says. The Israelites were subdued at the time. The Judahites succeeded. Why? Because they depended on the Lord, the God of their ancestors. So as we read these stories and continue to dive into these stories of these kings, that there has to be lessons for us, right? So, so what is it that we can see from this story as Abijah 
the great hypocrite, stands in front of the people and talks about the faithfulness of God, talks about how they are worshiping God and how they will not turn their back on God. And he is the only one that is to be worshiped. And he is going to keep his promise to his ancestor David to, that, the, that the throne would never be removed from his family. And he's, he's so bold and, and, and outspoken about it. And then the sneak attack comes and he realizes he has no answers. He's outnumbered two to one. He's been outmaneuvered by King Jeroboam. Everything is lost. What are they going to do? And they cry out to God and God steps in and saves the day. What in the world should we learn from this? The first is this. You need to know how weak you are. You need to know how weak you are. It is not uncommon for God to put us in a battle and even at times surround us on all sides so that we'll see our complete and utter dependence on him for anything that is of worth, anything that is of value. Okay, so, so when you hear that, really the, the, the cry of your heart is, why? How many of you like being weak? So, so this, I'm working on my car just trying to get one of those, those bolts loose. Man. Now, good news, I was trying to get another bolt loose and I snapped it in half, so... That created a whole different list of problems. But how many of you like being weak? None of us like being weak. There's nothing worse than having to get something from point A to point B and going over and picking it up and being able to get it all of three inches. I hate being weak. Why does God have to put me in a weak situation? Why does God have to put me in a spot that highlights my weakness? Why would God do that? So that God gets the glory. So that God gets the glory. Because the other thing we need to take from this story, not only do we need to know how weak we are, we need to know how strong God is. We need to be in situations where we have nothing to depend on, nothing to lean on, nothing to rely on but God. And watch what God will do. Uh, remember how big God is. Remember how strong God is. One of the things I read in a book in the last week or two, it says something about we... we, we too many times when we pray, we call out to God and we talk about how big our problem is. And the reality is when we pray, we should be talking to our problem about how big our God is. So we need to know how strong God is. When everything's said and done and the dust settles and, 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 and all of a sudden we realize that we made it through to the other side, there is nothing we can say except for God, that was you. I mean, that's, that's some of the greatest Old Testament stories, isn't it? I mean, we, we know those stories. David and Goliath. I mean, little dude, big dude. Little dude wins. Okay, that had to be God. You, you've got Gideon against the Midianites. You know, 300 men against a, a host of people who looked like, like locusts crawling over a field when you looked at them from a distance because there were so many of them. And, 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 and no weapons. Just the sword of the Lord and Gideon. And God brings victory. Or, or Joshua marching around Jericho. Now there, there is a plan that Norman Schwarzkopf used back in the day. Let's surround the city and march around it a few times and see what happens. Good plan. When those walls dropped, do you think any of the guys were like, yes, we did it? No. They needed to see how strong God was. Here, here's something we don't think about often. You slept last night. That shows your weakness. 
You want to see God's strength? The world kept turning while you were sleeping. Your lungs continued to fill with air while you were sleeping. Your heart kept beating while you were sleeping. And this morning, you woke up. You slept last night. And the God who never sleeps nor slumbers sustained you. And you need to know how weak you are. But you need to know how strong God is. And it doesn't come as a surprise to God. Paul stumbled on that, didn't he? Man, three times. I just kept asking, would you get rid of this thorn, please? I could do so much more if I didn't have this thorn. I mean, think about what Paul actually did, right? And without that thorn, imagine what else he could have accomplished. And yet God's answer to him was, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is perfected in weakness. And then Paul has the greatest response after that. Therefore, I'm going to gladly boast about my weakness, which is a funny thing to brag about. You know how weak I am? (laughs) But Paul says, I'm going to boast about it because in my weakness, Christ's power is going to reside in me. So I'm going to take pleasure in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and in difficulties for the sake of Christ because when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. So where is God showing you your weakness? So you may cry out. Let's get real. Is it your addiction? Is it that thing that you keep doing that you're like, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to do it again. And then five hours later, you fall right back into the trap. Where is he showing your weakness? Is it in your anger? Your abusive language? Is it in your pride? Where is he showing you your weakness? Maybe, maybe it's in your just incredible desire that, that just takes over your whole being to be liked by other people. Where is God showing you your weakness? Maybe, maybe it's a lack of dedication to knowing God better. Maybe it's a, a lack of prayer. Maybe it's a lack of of serving him. Where is God showing you your weakness? It might be at work. It might just be like, I am so far over my head and I have no idea what to do. Maybe it's at home. I mean, let's be honest. There is nothing quite like children to show you your utter helplessness. Right? So, So maybe it's that. Maybe it's you just don't know how you're going to make it through each day. Paying the bills, doing what needs to be done, and you're just overwhelmed. Where's God showing you your weakness? When's the last time you cried out to him for help? When's the the last time you gave God the opportunity to reveal to you his strength? Maybe this morning needs to be that time. Maybe as we uh, close out here and we sing a song or two, 
that you should just sit where you are and dump your heart out on him. Maybe you should come to one of the altars. There's an altar over there by the cross. Maybe you should come to one of the altars and tell him what he already knows. (laughs) You're weak. And you desperately need him. When's the last time you found yourself hanging onto that bar with everything you had? And instead of just trying to tough it out, you were humble enough to cry out, Help! Help! Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the lessons we can learn in it and through it. I thank you that we can know you better because of it. And God, as much as we hate being weak, me probably more than anybody. Thank you for the reminders that we need you and that you're more than enough. God, for those who are here feeling like the battle's closing in all around them, would you hear their cry this morning? Would you remind them of how strong you are? Would you give them grace for each and every moment? Thanks for the that great demonstration of your strength, mercy, and love by by sending your son Jesus Christ to die in our place and then raising him from the dead. Thanks for Jesus, for the victory that can be ours, for the hope that is ours. It's in his incomparable, matchless, and powerful name I pray. Amen. Amen.